0: Hello and welcome to the Religious Studies Podcast. We hope you are doing well in this crazy, crazy world. I'm Brianne Fallon, and with me is
1: Dave McConaughey, straight from Massachusetts and still in isolation, just like Bree is in Australia, many thousands of miles, an entire ocean apart. And yet, you and I are basically experiencing the same kind of isolation from our social networks right now. Isn't that right?
0: That is right. Although I have recently changed isolation locations. So I'm no longer in my tiny one-bedroom apartment and I'm now on a 400-acre farm with my mom and dad, which is far less isolating, I must say, wow. despite the fact that it's in the middle of nowhere. It's nice to have more time, people around.
1: <laughs> time to take a, to a really long walk, feed the horses, get out, yeah. get out in the pasture.
0: That's right. I might try walking around the whole edge of it and see what happens.
1: That's good. I, I I anticipate your report with um uh, uh some some details about uh the Australian wildlife. So so I can't can't wait to hear hear back. Can can we get pictures for all of our Twitter followers?
0: Yeah, sure. Why not? I'll put up some. We actually have deer here, which people may not know. But I'll put some deer, some kangaroos, some scorpions. I'll see what I can find.
1: Excellent. From my desk yesterday I managed to see the beaver in the pond across uh, the road from us. So that nice. was quite a quite a treat. Bree and I are, are being are being light here cuz today's episode in in the midst of COVID is actually not a particularly light episode. Today Chris Cotter's interview with Jen Schletter about near death experiences on the table and we hope you enjoy it. So take it away.
2: Listeners to the Religious Studies Project, and indeed um, in society beyond, will be very familiar, I imagine, with the notion of near-death experiences. They've become quite um, a predominant theme in fictional narratives and, and across the internet. Um, but within academic study, there, I've there been sort of two approaches possibly to these and one would be to be hypermedicalized, physiological, psychological and seeing them um, as, you know, phenomena to be explained away. And another approach would be to be seeing them as proof of life beyond and um, using them in that sort of context. But what's been largely absent um, up until now has been a, a critical religious studies approach looking at these narratives in their social and historical context, and what they can maybe tell us um, about uh, our society and about our lives. Um, Joining me today to talk about near-death experiences is uh, Professor Dr. Jens Schlitter of the University of Bern. Um, Professor Schlitter studied uh, philosophy and Buddhist studies and comparative religion in Bonn and Vienna, and got his PhD in philosophy from the University of Bonn and has held research positions at the University of Munich and the University of Bonn and he's currently at the University of Bern um, where he is professor for the systematic study of religion and also co-director for the Institute for the Science of Religion. And his publications comprise contributions on methodological and theoretical questions on the study of religion, on Buddhist bioethics, and comparative philosophy. But of particular relevance today is his 2018 book with Oxford University Press called What Is It Like to be Dead? Near-Death Experiences, Christianity and the Occult. So first off, Professor Schlieter, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thank you, Chris, for inviting me here. It's mm-hmm. wonderful to have you here in Edinburgh on a sort of crisp winter's day. Um, I could just start off by asking you, what is it like to be dead, Professor Sleater? But um, although uh, it may be fairly obvious what got you interested, because it is just such an inherently um, sort of tantalizing topic, but what what was it that got you interested in um, studying and writing about near-death experiences?
3: The title, of course, is a little bit provocative, but it is indeed to be found in uh, the scriptures on near-death experiences. Uh, But I thought of the famous article by the philosopher Thomas Nagel writing an article on what is it like to be a bat. Uh, And he argues Mm. we don't know because we usually imagine ourselves hanging in a cave uh, from the top. Uh, uh, But we do not know what is it like for a bat to be a bat. Uh, And so there is, of course, a very important topic in the whole. People claim that they were actually dead, but the definition of death usually would define death as a status of irreversibility. So one cannot come back into life. So there's a paradox there. But on the other hand, these experiences of people very close to death, uh, they must be taken seriously because people change their lives. Uh, they uh, write uh, large autobiographic narratives in which they define this experience as absolutely life-changing in regard to new spiritual views on uh, themselves, on the soul, on the beyond, etc. So that was uh, my initial interest in the whole. Um, how can people describe something that we usually consider as impossible? Because this standpoint of describing a status after death cannot be taken but obviously we have these narratives so what do we do absolutely and that it really cuts to um, a sort of core methodological issue in Mm. the study of
2: religion Mm. I suppose where we have uh, all we have to go on is Mm. discourse and what people say and putting Mm. indescribable experiences Mm. into sort of natural language in a sense So whether we're talking about any experience of the supernatural it's inherently has to be described in 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 language mm. and and um be articulated in that way so um, it, yeah it, it kind of quite nicely captures um one of the core issues in the study of religion but, but before we get any further um and you've already hinted at it there but what is a, a near-death experience? Um, just so we're all talking from the same page.
3: Yes, I uh, started uh, by uh, defining the um, methodological point of view on near-death experiences in the book as, uh, let's say, historical discourse study. So I looked at who defined uh, near-death experience for the first time. Usually. Uh, people claim that it was Raymond Moody, an American uh, medical professional doctor. Um, and he published a book uh, in 1975, Life After Life, and there he speaks of near-death experience and near-death experiences in the plural, uh, claiming that he used the category to describe those narratives which he uh, encountered in hospitals Mm -hmm. by survivors of, for example, heart attack, or nearly drown or something like that. But uh, in my book, I can show that the term near-death experience is somewhat earlier used already by John C. Lilly in 1972... And he wrote an autobiography in the center of the cyclone. And there he describes, interestingly, a near-death experience, but on the basis that he himself was close to death uh, using um, LSD. And so he had visionary experiences Mm. triggered by LSD. But on the other hand... He uh, was ill and uh, administered himself um, an antibiotics, but obviously something went wrong, um, and so he was actually really close to death and uh, almost uh, comatose-like uh, the status. So, uh, and um, Raymond Moody read the book, but of course for him it was rather unsettling that it was an lsd experience mm. but in the book i can show that indeed lsd and near death experiences co-evolved in mm. the 1970s as a discourse and not uh, and it is not a new phenomenon already in uh, the early 19th century uh, people spoke of um experiences close to death and uh, what happens there namely a live review out of body experiences oh now i know here i get back to the question of yeah, the yeah, definition yeah, yeah. sorry um <laughs> sorry. so uh, near death experiences usually in what raymond moody um first uh, systematized um encompass around uh, about 15 different uh Topoy, uh, one may say, if one looks at it from a discourse perspective, namely um, to get out of one's body and to encounter um, one's dead body from an elevated perspective, looking hmm. down at oneself in lying in the bed. Uh, then there is the idea uh, expressed that you get into something like a summer land or paradise uh, that you encounter heavenly beings, uh, someone, sometimes they are of help and guide you through the netherworld. Sometimes they are frightening. Also experiences of encountering other uh, family members and friends who died already. So uh, an after death experience in in the meaning that Hmm. you enter a space where these uh, are already there um, but also a kind of a barrier and uh, heavenly voice uh, an uh, an experience of the presence of god or jesus um, and finally to be um, uh, to get back into the body uh, so These are elements, and uh, Raymond Moody's um, um, idea was these are usually in a kind of um, continuous narrative, so they follow each other because they are a universal experience mirrored, of course, into the individual backgrounds and uh, so on. But in general, he believed they really tell something about the after-death mm-hmm. uh, realm. And therefore, these are real experiences. Uh, for me, of course, this is a metaphysical assumption uh, mm-hmm. that I can neither deny uh, nor uh, firm with my research uh, and therefore I looked at them only as reports Mm -hmm. reports of experiences so okay the word experience usually means that you truly encounter something that uh, transforms your point of view that transforms uh, you probably totally if it is a life-changing experience um but one can also say um experiences are construed in the aftermath after surviving mm. the whole thing. People usually uh, will ask themselves, how did it happen that I personally survived? Mm. So why uh, didn't I die? And I think these are really questions of meaning, of mm. meaningfulness. And... Uh, Very often, at least in our culture, people tend to think of religion as providing an answer and therefore looking for an answer why they survived. Uh, They had maybe visions. We don't know because there is no way to figure out if these visions happened the way they were. Um, But uh, for them, of course, they are real. And uh, we will never know. But what I can say, at least in the book and show with various examples, that certain narratives, for example, the one of a life review, that you uh, remember scenes and um, things in early uh, in your early life, in your life unfolding, etc., and that this life review. Uh, actually emerged in, uh, the narratives. It is not yet there in medieval reports of, uh, um, near-death experiences, if one can say they are near-death experiences, yeah. because usually they are deathbed visions by monks and nuns, etc. Yeah,
2: Yeah. And indeed, um, you make the point in the, in the book that up until, um, recent decades, um, I suppose these experiences tended to be narrated by others, people, you know, telling of of someone else's experience. Whereas, uh, whereas there was a a point at which that there was the turn to the individual and the self narrative, Mm -hmm. um, which um, I think we're probably going to get onto Mm -hmm. fairly shortly. Mm -hmm. Um, So just before we get there, you've already given some hints at your, your methodology there Mm -hmm. and the, the, you know, it's, fairly standard religious studies approach in the sense of we, you know, regardless of whether there is, is a reality or not, what we have to go on are people's accounts of their experiences. And these accounts have impact and social impact. So let's look at them and treat them at face value and just deal with the content and the meaning and etc. etc. But is, is there anything else that you'd like to sort of caveat what you're saying with like you know like what, what was the body of material that you yeah. were consulting
3: yeah what well, i thought it would be good to start with personal narratives not those as you mentioned uh by others so third hand uh, evidence so and narratives from a first person point of view are of course very much connected to the emergence of autobiographies of subjectivity and uh, usually one of the major figures in this emerging tradition was uh, the French philosopher Montaigne. Mm. And he, in his essays, ha- uh, unravels a near-death experience, interestingly. Yeah. Uh, and major elements that were of importance for... Uh, reporters of near-death experiences uh, that informed Moody are not yet there. They Mm. are simply not there. But then there is uh, uh, Francis Beaufort. um, He was an admiral of the the British Navy and uh, he is the first uh, who really had a classical near-death experience in at uh, the end of the 18th century, he fell into Portsmouth Harbor, nearly drowned as a young man. And uh, decades later, he reported his experience. And for the first time, we have mm-hmm. this uh, life review phenomenon. So he said, I could see um, scenes from my early childhood, memories uh, that I uh, were not aware of, that I... Uh, made these experiences. So, and this is an interesting element in itself. But so, from uh, the 16th century up to 1975, this is what the book covers. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, decided not to look at sources from Uh, non-European cultures there's of course an extensive discussion if near-death experiences are purely Western phenomenon or if near-death experiences can be um, uh, seen in Indian, Japanese, Chinese traditions. A very important element that is usually pointed at is, of course, the Tibetan Book of the Dead that mm. has been published uh, by Oxford University Press in 1927, translated by uh, Walter Ealing Evans Vance uh, in collaboration with uh, a native um, uh, uh, Tibetan um, uh, Lama Kazidawad Samdup, And they um, were tremendously successful in popularizing these Tibetan thoughts and rituals what should be done if someone dies. And the idea to guide him through the netherworld, of course, in the Tibetan context to encounter karmic delusions and to be very frightened because um, the consciousness principle has to navigate through its own uh, complications uh, and so on. But to give you one example Mm -hmm. that it is Uh, quite important to look very closely at the reported uh, experiences. People usually say, well, this is evidence that they are of a universal quality. Hmm. Um, If you have Tibetans reporting such experiences in the 14th century or so, and modern uh, Western evidence, uh, so it seems to be. But, uh, for example, the idea that... uh, There is an out-of-body experiences and one looks back at oneself. In the Western tradition, it is very much the idea that you face yourself being dead. Uh, So the the soul or consciousness hovering over the body is interested to look at, to examine the body. Because the body is something foreign, something... Mm. Uh, That is uh, no longer animated, but still something, a point of reference in this world, etc. Whereas in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, of course, due to the idea of reincarnation, etc., the body is of no importance. And you can see that... Uh, It is much more a social reality in the Tibetan Buddhist account of this moment where the soul or consciousness, uh, to be more precise in the Tibetan Buddhist context. So the consciousness principle looks not at its uh, former body, but at the weeping family members Hmm. uh, and tries to convince them, oh, I'm fine, please, uh, you do not help me if you weep, I can see you, but you obviously can no longer see me, but please, that's not good for me to, because now I have a task, I shall move forward to my next existence uh, and best would be, of course, uh, no longer to be reincarnated at all. So mm-hmm. uh, when at the first sight, it seems to be, okay, that's an out-of-body experience, but the narrated uh, content is totally different in terms of uh, epistemology, in terms of soteriology, and so on and so forth. Absolutely.
2: So you, you've started to get into there, um, I guess, the socio-cultural historic context within which um, near-death narratives are occurring. Um, and much of your book, uh, I guess, is looking at um, Western context, as you say. Um, and and you, do, you, you do an excellent job of charting some of the I guess contextual factors that might have shaped and led to a perhaps you might call an explosion of near death mm-hmm. um narratives, um so perhaps if you maybe maybe tell us about some of those modern societal developments that have sort of gone hand in hand with uh near death narratives
3: yeah. I think this is a very important aspect, and I think uh, so far there was little interest to look at uh, the correlations. What is astonishing is the fact that in the 1970s, um, major developments in the Western medical system uh, were going on, for example, to declare people no longer dead with the criterion of – heart failure, um, and other classical criteria that were used for ages, but to declare people dead if there is no longer brain activity. And there are, of course, measure, measure, measurements from the EEG, etc. But uh, that's led to the situation that people without uh, a functioning brain were declared dead but their body was still so let's say alive in a way and of course it uh was seen as a major advantage also for transplantation of organs and many of them can only be used if the body is fully Mm -hmm. intact and of course the artificial respiration and so on and so forth and the phenomena like. Coma and locked-in syndrome, they were described um, at a new level, more scientifically defined, and so on and so forth. But in the general society, these developments were considered as extremely unsettling because mm. there was now an ambivalence. Is someone dead or not dead? Only dead if uh, declared to be dead and who shall be trusted. Uh, The uh, physicians, uh, the doctors in the intensive care unit, if they say uh, he or she is dead, then we accept that. And uh, so that was really unsettling. And on the other hand, if, of course, due to uh, circumstances that people were able to survive a certain period of very low brain activity... Um, And some of them had visionary accounts that they, or visionary experiences, or let's say near-death experiences, uh, returning from such a state. They said, well, in your medical uh, perspective, um, maybe we were that close to death that it was only a second that you may have decided um, to uh, close uh, the artificial Mm -hmm. attempts of um, sustaining uh, my life. But I survived. And not only that, I had certain experiences that are absolutely central uh, for my uh, life that I would like to live from now onwards with different um, values.
2: Yeah. So yeah, you've. You, um, I'm just pushing through because yes. of time. But we, yeah, we have those those medical developments, uh-huh. and you know, people being yeah. um, sustained longer. And you describe how they moved from mostly dying out of a hospital context to moving uh-huh. into hospital context. Uh-huh. You've got also all different forms of uh-huh. medication, um, which might have hallucinogenic uh, properties. Uh-huh. Um, what legal or illegal? Uh-huh. Um, but then there's also um, individualization within religion, beyond religion, you know, the sort of importance of individual narratives in the self. Um, and then also, I guess that all ties into a secularization narrative as well. So you've got all of this going on and then... Eastern in quotation marks influences mm. coming in. You've already described the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So there's a lot going on in the sort of 60s, yes. 70s yes. Um, in terms of just rapid social development in these areas, um, which understandably you know, facilitated the, the development and um, I guess dissemination of these mm. these near-death narratives. But I'm, I'm keen to, to get to the uh, the, the religion word. Mm. Um, because um, we need to on the religious studies project, um, and and towards the end of the book you you, you tackle that head on uh, and talk about um, how um, religious metacultures might have influenced and shaped um, the the form and content of these near death narratives, and then also you talk about uh, potential um, i guess you could say religious functions of the narratives, so maybe you yeah. could take us through some of that.
3: Yes, uh, I think usually books of reporting individuals themselves, they do not um, very openly quote sources that inspired them. But if you look more closely at the whole near-death reporting genre, one can see that there are many spiritualists, many Uh, who are close to Western esotericism. For example, parapsychological accounts are very often combined with near-death accounts. For example, Alexander Eben, um, who published a very, very successful book. Um, So there are people who are usually, in a way, religious, and at the same time, they are distant in regard to dogmas of established churches. So um, usually there's something like this. They were brought up in very religious families and uh, they had a background uh, of, uh, let's say, intensive socialization within a religious tradition. And then they moved on, studied, for example, something on the science of nature medical medicine or whatever becoming became more critical towards religion and towards established religion in particular and then this happens an event that uh, in which they almost died and i think it is very plausible to look at uh, to look at the phenomenon with this perspective at this moment they revive their former emotion, and that was inspired and formed by a very religious uh, family life. But, of course, they are already uh, stuffed with critical rationality. They are distant in regard to un founded claims of traditional religious traditions. So the individual experience is uh, from my point of view a very vital element of this late modern religiosity. Mm-hmm. And therefore one can say near death experiences are probably prototypical for the development. You do not you people no longer believe that uh, there is let's say a life after death in terms of what traditional especially of course the Catholic Church um, had to offer but they have their individual experiences Mm -hmm. and they think this is uh, authentic par excellence because Mm -hmm. it is individual Uh, so in a way One can say the whole phenomenon mirrors recent developments in Western societies. And on the other hand, I think they offer a certain kind of a solution for mm. the whole, because yeah. people can still continue to believe uh, and... Um, Very often, also, one can see that they have a kind of missionary attitude, uh, Mm. that they really speak very freely on their near-death experiences, even though very often um, they note, okay, I know that you are skeptical, and this is a materialistic society, and no one will believe me. But this is part, again, of the whole authenticity that they feel that uh, they are in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I guess um,
2: even someone who um, was notionally non-religious, in, in scare quotes, there um, they're part of a context and the experience, whatever it is, is felt, and will their interpretation of it will be informed by their the context within which, uh, and the context will, I suppose, also influence the experience itself in the first place, because, you know, that people bring things to an experience and then afterwards interpret it with the resources that are available to them. And especially once, once there is such a
3: economy of near-death experiences, then then it, it's Absolutely. going to take a Although I think it is rather a rare case in which one, will have a near-death experience uh, without ever being introduced to religious thoughts, rituals, traditions Mm. before. Because uh, I think, indeed, um, one has to have a certain disposition and Mm. a certain expectancy for things to happen in such uh, experiences. Mm. But nevertheless, as I said uh, at the beginning, If you would imagine um, yourself in a situation or someone else in a situation, maybe he is not very religious, but survives a very tragic accident. Maybe other uh, companions in the car died. And then you have the question of contingency, what sociologists uh, always say in regard to religion. So the, the question of the reduction of contingency, namely, I could have died here. It didn't happen. So who saved me? Uh, We usually attribute uh, uh, such uh, survival to a force. We are continuously looking for explanations. Uh, We cannot live without no explanation. And simply to say, it was by chance. There was no uh, other force involved at all. And so I would say... This uh, way of looking at uh, a situation, and of course, many suffer from, uh, let's say, the... uh, Injuries they have, so they are in a hospital, they are alone, they are under medication. Well, I don't want uh, to simply say that's an outcome of that all. I hope mm. that's clear that I think the whole is meaningful. Yeah. It's not simply to be reduced to such uh, factors, but these factors are or should be taken into consideration too. So people alone are thinking at and on their lives, uh, probably the question of meaning pops up in their lives for the first time ever, and mm-hmm. then they maybe, oh yes, there was a certain kind of light. Was there a being behind the lights? Uh, did I see a being? Although I do not believe, uh, but probably it was a being. And haven't I heard some kind of message? Mm. So. Because the, the whole thing for them is, of course, complicated too. They have to remember ecstatic experiences. Yeah. And they cannot say um, what they experience the moment they experience that. So yeah. they have an epistemological problem too.
2: Yeah. Um, and again, we're right back to that, putting um, sort of non-falsifiable experience into words um, after the event and uh, going back earlier in the interview you mentioned um, montaigne um i have a tattoo of some words by montaigne um fortis imaginatio generat casum a strong okay. imagination creates its own reality yes yes um, absolutely but there, there yeah there, there's a, a sense of uh, after an experience um one is only going to be able to interpret yes. and articulate uh, and human memory is a well, yeah. It's it's an awful thing, is memory, yes. you know, like as eyewitness reports in in in, in yes. criminal cases or say uh, absolutely, and yeah. these experiences because they're so intense and profound mm. and are occur in such sort of traumatic circumstances, you know, they're going to yes. be revisited and rearticulated and pondered yes. time and time yes. again. Um, so, yeah, we can't say too much about the actual experience itself, but what you're doing is is looking at looking at how people are articulating it and what are the themes and how that has has impacts. Um, we're, we're pretty much out of time, um, but I, I just wanted to sort of finish with uh, what might be, or again, it's been implicit throughout the interview, but sort of what would be some of your take-home messages for, for the study of religion um, from um, your work with near-death experience? Uh, um, like, you know, what, what do you think others can take and and apply perhaps more broadly in in their own studies in this religion thing that we're also obsessed with?
3: (laughs) Well, I think one of the general insights that I would consider central is that extraordinary experiences were for some years less studied because people thought, well, it is a discourse by religious practitioners to speak about their extraordinary experiences. But I think there is really something uh, in there that may help also to look at recent developments. For example, these books by Near Death Experiences, they are incredibly successful. Very often you have them in Amazon ranking lists mm-hmm. on place five, two, three, uh, and four weeks. So there is not only uh, the experience, but also a large audience interested in mm-hmm. this experience. So to study this as the phenomenon, as a part of a phenomenon of no longer institutionalized religion, But nevertheless, as a part of a religious discourse where experience matters, Mm -hmm. an experience that very often has been only psychologized, and uh, there are a lot of uh, neuroscientific theories that simply say, well, it's it's, a dysfunctional brain that produces such delusions, and uh, you cannot take it serious. And I think... This is simply uh, a very short-sighted view of the whole because people change their whole life after the experience, although it would be very important to have a closer look at this phenomenon. This has not yet been researched from my knowledge, mm-hmm. really an empirical study that not only considers uh, what the autobiography of, uh, Maybe also an oral narrative of what has happened after the experience is considered, but also to look more closely at families, friends, and really to corroborate evidence that it was a Mm life-changing matter. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, uh, on that final note, a potential
2: research project for a listener, or perhaps that's your next research project. I don't know. Well, um, thank you so much, uh, Professor Schlieter, for joining us on the Religious Studies Project. I'm looking forward to hearing how it goes down. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Good.
1: We hope that in the midst of the pandemic that everyone is experiencing when mortality is really something that we're all thinking and facing right now, that this was a a good opportunity to think about the religious approaches to death and dying. We feel that the episode stands on its own for right now, and we could say a lot of things about what's going on in the world, but there are so many things that are affecting us. And one of them is that so many of our respondents who um, through the generosity of their time and their efforts, contribute to what we produce and what we share here at the site. And, we're so thankful for their efforts but right now that march of progress every week where we get friday responses for you has been severely disrupted by uh by what's going on and so we hope to bring those to you when everybody is back on their feet and and things are getting back um rolling a little bit more and until then the podcast will continue we have ample supplies a podcast to bring you and um what else should we share with uh listeners who continue to join us today brie
0: Well, speaking of the pandemic, next week we do have a discourse episode which looks at current affairs in the world. And, of course, COVID-19 will come up. And a friendly reminder that, you know, uh, discourse – Once upon a time was behind a paywall, behind the Patreon paywall. And we have decided, of course, that because it's so fabulous that we're going to make it available to everyone. But, you know, if you do have the opportunity to contribute to us by becoming um, a Patreon, just one dollar makes a big difference to us. So yeah, have a think about that when you're listening to Discourse and if you, you know, can support our podcast, that would be a really amazing thing for us. Um, But also after discourse, we have a fabulous podcast coming up, which is one of yours, Dave, and you you interviewed Arlene Sanchez-Walsh on boxing and religious identity. I'm certainly very much looking forward to that. But until then, all that's left to say is thanks Thanks for listening. listening.
2: The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our Opportunities Digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash project rs and you can find us on facebook twitter google plus youtube itunes and other portals